Well, if you're a guest, we're glad you're here. My name is uh, David. I'm the pastor, and you're always welcome to anything we have going on in our church. We're in a we're in a series. May is kind of the month we focus on family around here, and and we're doing that now. And uh, we're in a series entitled uh, "The Big Messy." <laughs> if it looks like we named it after a cheeseburger, I did about a year ago when I came up with this series. I named it after a cheeseburger. It was my wife's favorite burger in town, and I thought, you know what? Nothing describes family life more than saying it's just one big messy thing. And so we've looked, we've looked at family. We, 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 we looked a couple of weeks ago, we started it, you know, with Adam, you know, waiting on a woman, waiting on Eve, marriage, God, man, woman coming together. Uh, last week we looked at David, his sin, how it impacted his entire family. We looked at that next week. We're going to be in the New Testament. We're going to look at, uh, uh, they asked Jesus about divorce and he gave an answer. I know that's a tough subject and it hits home to a lot of people. It hit home, you know, with my family with, uh, you know, my mom was divorced when I was three. We're not, we're not going to beat anybody up. So don't worry. Don't think I mean, I'm going to come, you know, beating up anybody. We don't do that here. We do, we'll, we'll talk about truth, but you know, we're going to, we're going to be sure that we work things in a way that will honor Scott and, and honors the things that he wants for us. Uh, today we're going to come back to the Old Testament and uh, going to deal with a guy named Solomon. And he was the son of David. You know, and David, David was this phenomenal king. And we saw the sin of David, but David was a man after God's own heart. He always loved God, always served God. You know, when Solomon comes after him, and, and Solomon gets, you know, rather high marks in most people's minds. We think positive things about Solomon. But really the passage we're going to come to today is pretty tough, pretty tough on Solomon. And what, what I want you to see about Solomon today in, in terms of how it affects family, how it affected his life, how it, how it fits into our series about the big mess, he is simply this. You're seeing a man today who, if you have to describe him, who's a man who was loving poorly. And that's what Solomon did. He loved poorly. God, poorly. And we'll be in, you know, in 1 Kings at the end of his life today looking at that. And, and here's the thing that I really you know, want you to understand from this message today. If you want your life to be messy, and if you really want to mess up your family, then you love someone or something more than you love God. Because I promise you, if you love someone, you love something more than you love God, your life will be messy. And so as we, we come today, um, a little bit of different sermon, the way I'm going to develop it is normally I start off with the passage and give you context and you know, explain the passage and then I kind of help apply it. I'm going to kind of go to the application first. What I want to do is I want you to start off just, I want you to think about your family. Just think about whatever your family looks like. Whatever pops into your mind is your family. Just think about your family. Every family's different. You know, we've got all different styles. And my family life has changed, you know, within the last, you know, seven months. You know, everything's different. And uh, so just think about your family. And understand, once again, we're not, you know, we're not trying to beat anybody up, beat your family up. Just think about it. Think about whether you think about yourself. As, are you, is your family in a mess right now? Has it been in a mess? Is there a mess on the horizon that you're worried about? And then I'm going to ask you a few questions. And I... And, and, Put it in the context of the question, I'm going to talk about your faith. And whenever we talk about faith, this side of Jesus, you know, we're, we're on this side of Jesus. Faith is always connected to a relationship with Jesus. So even if I'm in an Old Testament passage and we're talking about faith, from my perspective, it's always connected to a relationship with Jesus. And I'm also going to talk a little bit about culture and understand the culture is the culture which we live in. Um, back in January, I preached a series about our culture. And one of the things I said about our culture is a philosophy that just kind of has invaded our culture and has taken over is something called moral relativism. And the idea that there is no absolute right or wrong, that you can make your reality, you can make truth, whatever you want it to be, that you ultimately are the only true authority of what's right and wrong in your life. And that's kind of a culture, that's a culture that's opposite of the Christian way of thinking, opposite of a Jewish way of thinking, as a matter of fact. It's, it's just the opposite of how 
most of us at some point have grown up thinking. And so with, with that in mind, I just want to ask you three questions to start this, this sermon off today. The first question is this, does the culture influence your family and interfere with their faith? Does the culture that is out there, a culture, by the way, that is in opposition to God, does that culture influence your family and influence their faith? And by faith, I mean their relationship with Jesus. Now, you just think about that right now, where you're at in life, what's going on in your life, and where the culture is connected to your family life, is it influencing your family? Is it interfering with faith? The second question is this. Do you know the difference between prioritizing your family and appeasing them? You might say, well, of course I know the difference, but I'm talking about in reality. Because we all want our family to be a priority, but sometimes we get caught up in trying to keep peace in our family or not wanting to deal with the mess in our family, and we end up appeasing family. And that's kind of what you're going to see with Solomon today. And so you really need to understand there's a fundamental difference in life between you prioritizing your family and their needs and doing what is best and right for your family and appeasing your family, just trying to, have, trying to keep the peace. And I look, sometimes I get it. There are moments when you just got to keep the peace. All right. I, I got it. And, but this, that's, we're talking about when you just all out, do nothing but appease your family. And then the third question is really the one that I hope hits home the most. Are you teaching your children or your family that faith comes second in their lives? When you think about your life, think about what you do. Think about the prioritizing of your time and your money and your talents. And ask yourself this question. When you think about your family, especially children or grandchildren, are you teaching them in reality, by your actions, are you teaching them that faith in Jesus comes second in life? So I think if you're honest with yourself, many of you are going to have to say, at least at times, it appears that you're teaching your children, your family, that their faith in Jesus takes second place. Now, you would never say that. You say, no, Jesus is first, and I get it. But the reality is, for many, he is not. With that in mind, I want to talk to you today about the dumbest wise man ever, <laughs> Solomon. I'm going to shoot straight with you. I'm not a huge fan of Solomon. I'm really not. I think he gets a real pass in most Christian churches because, you know, I mean, I know Jesus said he's the wisest man that ever lived, and, and Jesus is right, obviously. But you notice Jesus doesn't quote a bunch from Solomon. The New Testament guys don't go back to Solomon as an example a lot. They don't. I mean, and, and you just look, you know, when Solomon wrote all the Proverbs, I get it, and the Proverbs are great. He didn't write all the Proverbs, but he wrote a lot of the Proverbs. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, which, to be honest, you realize that in Jewish world, the rabbis never let young men read the book of Ecclesiastes till they turned 30 years of age because it would mess them up. Now, I look at the Old Testament, and I'm just like, God, if you were going to take one book out, it would be that. Lamentations, but Lamentations, no biggie. Song of Solomon, okay, you know, but love, but, but Ecclesiastes, you know. But it, here's this guy who's, who was wise. I mean, and to his credit, you know, when, when God appeared to him in 1 Kings chapter 3, and God appeared to him twice in a dream, and twice God came to him with the prophet. And when he got appeared to him in a dream, and, and he said, you're going to be the king, right? Now understand, he didn't earn, I mean, David did everything. I mean, David was the king that set everything up. David was the man after God's own heart. And we saw, you know, David sinned, Absolutely. But David not, never stopped loving God. David never worshipped any idols. I mean, David was the absolute epitome of a king who loved God, even in his sin and failure. And every king is measured against David's love for God. 
And so he, 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 David created this kingdom. I mean, God did it, but he did it through David. Solomon didn't have to fight a bunch of wars. But what Solomon did is he expanded the economy of the kingdom. He made the kingdom great. He, you know, he cut deals. He brokered, you know, agreements. You know, he had people, you know, giving him money. But Solomon also did some things. He taxed the people cruelly. At the end of his life, one of the criticisms of Solomon was he was unbearable taxation. And he also took the children, the young men and women, and he drafted them in, into forced labor. By the way, if you go to 1 Samuel chapter 7, when the people say they want a king, and Samuel warns them of all the wrong and bad things the king will do to them, and they say they don't care, Solomon did that. And God appears to him and says, you're going to be the king, and here's what you got to do. What do you want? I'll give it to you. He says, I want wisdom, and God is pleased with Solomon. Great answer. I'm going to give you wisdom and wealth. And oh, by the way, Solomon, you will always be successful. You'll always have someone rule if you do this one thing. Just do what David did. Not to send Bathsheba and Uriah, but follow me. Worship me, and only me, and you'll be okay. First Kings chapter 6, a prophet comes to Solomon. They're doing the whole build the temple thing. Great thing, building the temple, magnificent. Every Solomon gets praised for building the temple. You realize it was David's idea, right? We call it Solomon's temple. It was David's temple. He thought of it. God just wouldn't let him do it. Once again, Solomon just following up what his daddy came up with, you know? And so God praises him and says, but here's the thing. Just be sure you keep my commandments. You follow all the things I told you to follow. He comes to him in chapter 9 again in a dream. So, all right, Solomon, be careful now. You don't want to follow the way of the, of, the, of the pagans. You want to keep my commandments, keep the relationship we have. He's always warning him about this. If you go back to Deuteronomy, before Israel came into the promised land, in chapter 5, God gives the people of Israel the Ten Commandments. You know, that's great, love the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, he tells him, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love God with everything you have, man. Love me with all you got. Later on, when they asked Jesus the greatest commandment, he came back here and said, love God with everything you got and love, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. We love that. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he just said this. When you get into the promised land and all the Canaanite people are there, they are pagans. They're godless pagans. Now, I talked last week about paganism some. You know, it's a word we kind of throw around, but it's a specific type of really religion. And in paganism in its classic form, and I told you last week, it's just they made up the gods and goddesses of their own mind, out of, out of their mind. And they made up these gods and goddesses, and they worshipped them. They made little idols, and they worshipped them. And it's silly when you think about it. They took stuff that God had created, and then they made a little idol, and then they said, that represents our gods and goddesses, and they began to worship them. But in the worship of the Canaanites in particular... Three things were a part of it. Three things, not just in the worship, but what they did. One is the Canaanites desired to completely destroy the Israelites. You need to understand, 3,300 years ago, give or take a you know, century when you're dealing with all the Exodus stuff, and you got Deuteronomy, the people of Canaan, the Canaanites, want to destroy every single living Hebrew person. That's their mission and goal in life. Secondly, their religion always involved the most deviant form of sexual practices you can imagine as part of their worship. And God didn't, that was completely unacceptable to God. But thirdly, they sacrificed people and they sacrificed their children. And the sacrificing of children was an abomination to God. So you can understand why in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says, when you come into the land, drive them out completely that they're not there. And if you can't drive them out, then destroy them. 
And I know in 21st century America, we say, how could a loving, all-powerful God, you know, destroy all these, you know, wonderful, loving, kind people that wanted to completely wipe out the Israelites, sacrifice their own children to gods that didn't exist? 3,300 years ago, when God was dealing with the world that existed, he wasn't concerned about 21st century Americans and our sensitivities. It wasn't high on his lips that people who don't worship him to begin with or love him or serve him might be a little offended because God wanted to preserve his people and keep these pagans from running roughshod over his plan to bring about the Messiah through Israel. That wasn't on top of his concern list. And he said, don't marry the women of the Canaanites. Don't marry their sons and daughters. And he said, here, one third thing in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Don't worship their idols. Don't worship their gods. Don't do that. And he continually warned Solomon. Hey, Solomon, remember what I told you? You remember what I told the people? Don't you know, keep, keep the rules. Keep the statutes. Keep the commandments just like David did. You got all that context. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now, Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. So here he is. God rewarded him. Don't do this. What did he do? He loved. The word loved doesn't mean to be in love with. It's an idea of devotion. People love God. God loves people. You, know, you could have friendships that you love. You could have things that you love. You could love your home. You're devoted. Now, it's interesting that the daughter of Pharaoh seems to be exempt. And primarily the reason for this, at most, and there's different understandings of it, but the primarily the reason simply is that the, the religion of the Egyptians was not a threat to the people of Israel by any consideration. Number one, they didn't practice the same types of immorality that the Canaanites practiced. Secondly, the Egyptians didn't live in the land, so they weren't going to take over the people of Israel. They weren't trying to destroy them. And third, because Israel had defeated Egypt, you know, before, um, they just weren't going to follow the religion of the Egyptians. So that didn't appear to be a problem. But here's, here's the problem. The women he fell in love with, or he loved, I should say, were Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. They were from the nations, and the word nation means people group. It doesn't mean geopolitical unit like America or Canada or Mexico. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, and had repeatedly, by the way, warned to Solomon about, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. For, or for the reason that, they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Don't have anything to do with them. Why? Because if you intermarry, if you let them stay, they're going to turn you after their pagan, non-existent gods and goddesses. Which, if you read the rest of the books of King, Book of Kings and Second Kings, is exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened. And the end of verse 2 says this, Solomon held fast to these in love. He held on to God. No. He held on to the foreign women in his devotion to them. You want to take a guess how many there were? Verse 3 says this. He had 700 wives. They were princesses. And 300 concubines. And his wife, his wives turned his heart away. Now, that's a lot of wives. I got you. A thousand. But by the world back then and by, you know, for the, in the olden times, old, old times, you know, it was not uncommon for kings to have hundreds and hundreds of wives. In fact, some would say his harem wasn't that large compared to other nations. It was for Israel. And, and God had warned Israelite kings, don't take a bunch of wives. Now, why, why do you have all these wives? What's the difference between a wife and a concubine? Well, 
Back then, and you're Israel, you're the most powerful nation around. And what you would do is you would take the kingdoms around you. And they, you know, the royalty would give you their daughters in marriage so that there's this relationship. And in exchange for doing that, you promise to protect their, those nations, but those nations also would not revolt against you and rebel because if they did, you would kill their daughters. Now, there were lots of royalty and, and lots of small tribes in some of these nations. The Philistines had five different tribal cities. So you would take, you know, wives, you would take the women from all the different little tribal royal groups and they'd become princesses. Now, a concubine would probably have come from a family of money or wealth. Maybe you're in an area and you do trade with a family, you do trade with someone, then their daughter would be a concubine. She wouldn't be a wife per se, she wouldn't be a princess, but she would still come into your harem. And so that's kind of what you had. You had this situation. He had a thousand, I don't know if it was a thousand exactly. At some point, you probably quit counting. You know, it just said, once you get past wife, like eight, you're into a thousand at the next point. You know, it just happens. <laughs> Verse 14. For what Solomon, when he was old, <laughs> when he was old, it says, his wife's turned his heart away after other gods. It doesn't mean when he was old, he married him. It wasn't like Solomon turned, you know, 55. I don't know that that's old by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, and my, I'm at a point where 65 doesn't appear old at all. And 70s looking rather dapper and young at that. But as he got older, they turned him away. His heart, the place of decisions, was not wholly devoted, devoted to the Lord as God. His heart was devoted to them. As the heart of David, his father has been. So David's heart was totally given to God, but his heart wasn't. No king ever truly lived up to David. For Solomon went after Astareth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, some of you versions have Molech, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. And so he, he started worshiping them. He went after them. Verse 6 says he did it, but was evil in the sight of the Lord. Evil, I mean, when I, when I want to say something as bad as I can about someone, I just say they're evil. I mean, they're just evil. And there are some people that I describe, I told someone about describing someone, I said, the only word I know to describe that person is they're evil. And they're like, that's rather harsh. I said, yeah, I can't think of anything harsher. He did not follow the Lord fully as David, his father, had done. Then Solomon built. Oh, remember, you know, we talked about Solomon. He built the temple. Oh, everybody praises Solomon, pats him on the back for building the temple David wanted to build, but God wouldn't let him build. And one of the great wonders of the world, Solomon built the temple. It's fantastic. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab. On the mountain, which is the east of Jerusalem, and from Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. So not only did God build a temple for, I mean, Solomon built a temple for God. He built places of worship for these pagan gods. So they could do all the things I described to you earlier. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, did all of that. In verse 8, says this, thus, he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. What did Solomon do? Married foreign women, the Canaanite women. God said, don't do it. He did it. God warned him. He did it. He turned away from fully and completely following God. God said, follow me like David did, and you'll be okay. He didn't. And the third thing that he did is he built places of worship and built idols for the pagan gods and goddesses that did not exist. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, did all of this because he loved God 
poorly. Verse 9, wouldn't you hate to have this written on your tombstone? Now, the Lord was angry with Solomon. No, I don't have me. I don't. Listen, I don't care if any of you get angry with me. Some of you probably have many times. Don't care. Don't lose a bit of sleep over it. I'll get over it the next second. Only one human that I ever chew, that I ever care about getting angry with me. One was my mama, and soon I got over that because really, after you've been grounded 25 times, the next time doesn't matter. And the other person was Debbie. I didn't want her angry with me. But man, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord. His heart turned away. The God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, that's two times in a dream, then there were two other times with prophets, and he had commanded him concerning this thing. He warned him, don't do this, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not observe. He didn't obey what the Lord had commanded. He didn't do it God's way. He did it his way. Because after all, he was the wisest man in all the world. Certainly he could do whatever he wanted and everything would be okay, but it wasn't. For verse 11 tells us this, so the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and you haven't kept my covenant and my statutes, which I commanded you, which you understood, which you said, yeah, God, we're good. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. I'm going to take it all away from you. Just like Saul had lost everything he had. Verse 12, nevertheless, oh, there's always mercy with God. I will not do it in your days while you're alive for the sake, not of you, but your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son, Rehoboam. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. You know, when Saul disobeyed God, you know what Saul did? Chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, he offered a sacrifice he shouldn't have offered. Chapter 13, he did that. And then in, in chapter 15, he was told by God to destroy the Amalekites and he didn't. And, and he disobeyed the direct word of God and he paid for that by having the kingdom taken away from him. But I'm here to tell you, Solomon, Saul didn't do anything like Solomon did. I mean, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, who had everything given to him. I mean, Saul was out having to fight battles. Solomon fought no battle. He was warned time and time again. And God said, I want to take the kingdom away from you, but not all of it, because of David. Because David loved me, and I promised David, if you would serve me and love me, there would always be someone who would reign. No, oh, by the way, that someone isn't a human necessarily for, you know, for all time. But it's Christ who was the Lord. I mean, he was pointing to the coming of Messiah. So God, for the sake of David, in Jerusalem, which David found, by the way, God kept the promise. If he's going to save the world from sin, he's going to do it through David. So not even Solomon in all his rebellion could stop that. But Solomon, make no mistake, loved poorly. Oh, he loved God. Yes, he did. He didn't love him like David loved him. And Solomon ended his life, he ended his kingship, having finished poorly because he loved poorly. In 1998, I was at a conference. It was led by uh, John, uh, John Maxwell. And I was at a kind of a turning point in, in my life. I was only 37. I've been in ministry 18 years. I was at First Laredo. We had a lot of success, but things were kind of stagnant. 
And I began to realize that the culture was changing. I mean, you know, and, and how am I going to reach this culture? And, you know, I love being Baptist, but we're, we're, always, we're always behind the times. I mean, every denomination is. We're slow. But organi- denominations are these big machines slow to change. And there were these churches out there doing stuff, reaching people. And, of course, you know, the established churches always condemn those churches that are doing something new and innovative. Remember this. The Messiah never changes. The message never changes. The mission never changes. But the methods and the ministries change. And if a church is more in love with methods and ministries, churches are going to die. And I knew that we were at a point where we had done some successful things in growing, but we were in a precarious position. I needed something new. I wasn't going to give it from a Baptist conference. I was at a Baptist church, Prestonwood, but they had brought in John Maxwell. And he was talking about the 21 laws of leadership, which were great. And they were so helpful to me in my ministry and provided a big change. But he said something else that stuck to me. He said, I had just turned 50 years old and I was thinking about this one thing. How many people he had seen in scripture and in life finish poorly? And he said, I didn't want to finish poorly. I wanted to finish well. I wanted to finish well. Now, I'm only 37. I'm not close to finishing anything. But it did dawn on me. At some point, we have to do things well. We have to do things the way that honors God, the way that God wants. We have to love, not poorly, but well. And you look at your life, and you look at where it is, and it's a big mess, and you're in danger of not finishing well. Look at some of your families. And at some point, your family was doing so good. And now your family's struggling. And you're afraid that your family's not going to end up well. Sometimes... You must ask yourself, if you're doing something because you love God or because you're giving into the culture, because if your family life's a mess, if your love life is a mess, it's not because you love God. It's because you're giving into the culture. And I would suggest to you that much like Solomon, you love God poorly. You love poorly. And everything's a mess because you're not following Jesus, which is the ultimate way you show love of God. It's in your following Christ. You're not following Christ the way he wants you to. He gives you scriptures. He gives you, you know, church. He gives you worship. He gives you groups. He gives you other Christians. He warns you constantly, just like he warned Solomon. So here's the thing. If you're living in the big messy right now, get this. Your life and your family are a mess because you love poorly. That's it. You Love poorly. It's not that you don't love God. It's not that you don't want to follow Jesus. You just do it poorly. Because you've let the culture take the place of God. It's not that you worship the culture, but you just let it take the place of God. Instead of following Jesus, you're following a culture that is in opposition to Jesus. And then that crawls into your family and it interferes with your family. And you've got one big mess in your life. And the solution is not that complicated. The solution is this, prioritize loving God. Love and live wisely. And that always begins with Jesus. It always begins with following Jesus. It always begins with doing things the way Jesus wants you to do it. 
But you can say no to doing things the way Jesus wants you to. And you can follow the culture and welcome to the big messy when you do that. And begin the message by saying, if you want your life to be a mess, love someone or something more than you love God. Love anything or anyone more than you love God and you will have a mess. I ask you, is the culture influencing your family and interfering with their faith? And if you say yes, you've got a mess. I've asked you, do you know the difference between prioritizing your family and appeasing your family? And if you say, no, I really don't know the difference because I'm really appeasing my family, you're going to have a mess. And I ask you, and you look at your life, are you teaching your children, people you love, people you care about, that your faith, your following Jesus comes in second place in your life? Because if you are, you're living with a mess. It doesn't have to be that way. It's not the way that you have to live. You can love Christ wisely by following him and giving yourself to him and serving him. And it's not that you don't make mistakes and it's not that you don't stumble along the way. But you don't have to love poorly by giving in to the culture and doing things the way the culture wants you to do it. You can live and love wisely with Jesus. Some of us can be standing up here. If you want to come and talk to one of us, you can pray. Ladies, we'll have another lady up too up here. You can pray or talk with him. And listen, sometimes some of you just, just may need encouragement. We want to give you that encouragement, pray with you. Maybe you want to pray for someone in your family. Maybe there's a mess in your life. You don't know how to get out of it. And praying up here for a few seconds isn't going to get you out of it, but at least maybe that's a start. And maybe you need to come talk to one of us at some point along the way. If you want to pray for someone you love, we will. Listen, if you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you need to give your life to Christ, you can do that. You can become that follower of Jesus. I don't know what it is you need to do. But don't walk out of here loving poorly. Walk out of here loving wisely. So, Father, we look at Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived. And God, there's a point in his life he was just dumb. He really was. Because he loved so poorly. And God, whatever talents and gifts we may have, sometimes we're just dumb because we love poorly when we can love wisely by giving ourselves completely to Jesus. So help us, Father, now live in that wisdom to love not poorly, but wisely.